welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. What's up, church? We are in Ephesians, and last week we interrupted it a bit, but we're back into Ephesians. Um, and we're looking at this verse we've been reading the last several weeks as we've been doing a series. But today, um, I'm going to start with some historical context. I'm going to give you some background because I want you to have the mindset of the first century Ephesian as you read that text because it really sets up the uh, understanding of Scripture differently um, than our, our, our current present Western context, because we, we might come from Christian backgrounds, whether we do or not, we have a way of reading things. And so um, I want to I wanna, I wanna give you some context. So stay with me as I give you some historical background. So the Old Testament ends with Malachi, and there's like this 400 and something year period between the Old and New Testament. And during that 400 and something year period, there's a famous Um, person that came and kind of conquered much of the known world at the time. His name was Alexander the Great. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Okay, great job, class. Great job. Um, So Alexander the Great uh, conquered the known territories. And he didn't just want to conquer. He wanted to Hellenize um, Greek uh, his, uh, he wanted to Hellenize the world. That word Hellenism, do we have slides for this, by the way? Um, that word Hellenism, there we go. Um, super helpful for me, thank you. <laughs> is, is that Greek, that Greek culture, philosophy, worldview. Alexander the Great didn't just want to conquer territories. He thought it was his God-given right to bring about his longings, his culture, his language, his lifestyle to the world. And so he didn't, just, he didn't just bring a military conquest. He would bring his whole formation of way of existence called Hellenism. And Hellenism um, was, was uh, the, the, the Greek culture and worldview. And the way systematically Alexander the Great brought this culture to the world is through temples, arenas, theaters, and gymnasiums. Temples were places where the Greeks would bring their deities, their gods, to set up shop for worship. And they, they were these places dedicated to the various Greek mythologies and gods. And, and those specific gods taught people about their worldview. But then he'd also build arenas. And arenas were like coliseums um, designed for battle and war and sport. And basically, it was Alexander the Great's strategy to keep the, um, the masses occupied with entertainment so that they would be distracted by the dominant ways that Greek culture was influencing the rest of the world. And then he put theaters in place. And so he built these theaters, these structures where people would come and see theaters put on display. And this was also another form of entertainment, but it was a way of communicating through stories and narratives the philosophy of the Greek culture. How do you know Um, the culture of a community, you look at the artifacts produced by um, the the people who make cultural artifacts. In our case, Netflix, Hulu, Disney. And they built gymnasiums. And gymnasiums were not so much like CrossFit gyms like we think of today. 
they were much more uh, inclusive. They were like a social club. If you wanted to have a, a business transaction, you would, ha- you would take it to the gymnasium. G- it was a place where they educated the youth and the next generation in the, in the, in the way of thinking, um, in philosophy, in art. And, and this, was, this was part of the process, the formation of Hellenism to the rest of the world. So Alexander the Great would go into a new territory. He would bring all of the Greek gods with him, and they would set up temples, and they would set up arenas, and they would set up theaters and gymnasiums to help infiltrate and influence the world in the culture of Hellenism. Hellenism was all about human perfection. You see, uh, it was about performance and achievement. There was a famous quote that said, glory won by achievement was believed to be the straightest path to heaven. So Hellenism def- uh, and Greek ideology believed that your human worth was found in achievement and beauty. The human body was worshipped because humans were the center of the world, according to Hellenistic and Greek mythology. So in this cultural worldview, you had to act a certain way, live a certain way, and believe the right things about the gods and the world and humanity in order to experience success and achievement. And anything that didn't measure up to this, this standard of perfection was pushed to the margins of society. So your value and your worth was based on your beauty, your achievement, your strength, your intellect, and your wealth. Again, this is a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand years old. This idea that there was 2,000 years ago, there was a city that said, and a culture that said, your value is based on what you do. Your worth is based on what you look like and how much you measure up to a cultural standard. How are we doing, church? Now, if you create a society that really has no morality other than achievement and success by conquest, what you do um, with the things of society and culture in the world that don't measure up is you push them off to the margins of your culture and society and city. And so um, what happens is the Greeks are defeated by the Romans, and the Romans had no originality whatsoever. Um, the Romans just copied and pasted all of the Greek gods and made them Roman gods. They just changed the names. They kept the temples, changed the names, and they embodied the Hellenistic worldview. So by the time Paul comes to Ephesus, to this, this city called Ephesus, which was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, Hellenistic culture was alive and well. When you place your value and worth in achievement based on beauty and perfection, it has significant implications for what happens to anything that doesn't measure up to the standard of perfection. At the time that Paul writes the letter of Ephesians, there was this tragic practice known as exposing of infants. In Ephesus, during the time Paul wrote this letter, it was legal and acceptable for a father and a mother to take a child they did not want and discard them because they were deformed, handicapped, or outside of the ideal, which for most people in the first century, the the ideal was having a male child, not a female child. 
And so they would take their children that were born to a nearby mountainside wilderness and expose them into nature, discarding them and leaving their unwanted children. This was common. This was normal. This is what you do when you build a society on human perfection because any child born with an imperfection, any child born with uh, a disability, any child born with, uh, that was a female could at, would be at risk of being discarded in the wilderness. So um, we have quotes that reveal this philosophy of worldview. Now, just stay with me. You're like, what is this history lesson? How does this make sense? I promise it will all come together. Uh, Socrates said, uh, Socrates, actually. Um, <laughs> you're like, wow. It's from Bill and Ted's, okay? And I'm dating myself. I realize I'm not a young adult. Oh, speaking of, real quick insert. We have a young adult retreat this weekend coming up. And... Uh, and it's for 18 to 30-year-olds. And we have about 20-something of garden students coming, and, or garden young adults, and 180 total signed up from all the churches that are partnering, Rock Harbor, Freedom, Fearless, Jesus Culture, uh, Daylight. Uh, there's all these churches in Southern California joining. And if you haven't heard about this, we would love for you to come. Go to our app and our website. It's the last day you can sign up. It's only $99 to join um, for three days. I'm teaching on the Holy Spirit for the whole weekend. Chris Kilala and Jesus Culture is leading worship. It's going to be an epic time. Please sign up. I'd love to have more of you show up. Um, if money's an issue, we have some scholarships made available. There you go. So now back to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Um, <laughs> I was preaching this week at Circuit Riders. Hold on, Socrates. Um, oh, we got some Circuit Riders here, yeah. And I, I was there for four days teaching on all this theology, and they're 18 to like 25-year-olds, basically. And I tried to use like culturally relevant terms, but I was so outdated. And I'm talking about like, you know, um, like cartoons that I grew up with, and they're saying all sorts of gibberish. Like they're saying Phineas and Ver Verb or something as some type of... I'm like, what is that? I don't know. And I realized in that moment how old I was. And I'm like, gosh, to be young without children or any responsibilities, Lord. Just kidding. No, I don't, I don't prefer that. I appreciate my life. Socrates said this. And I want you to understand this is, this is the teaching. This is the philosophy that shaped Ephesus. The children of inferior parents or any child of, of the others that is born defective, they'll hide and seek in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate. It is if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. Serana, uh, uh, so there's this, this philosopher, no, this is, this is a, a doctor uh, from like, I think it's like 3 BC. He writes this in, in regards to how to keep a child he says, the child should be perfect in all its parts, limbs, and senses, and have passages that are not obstructed, including the ears, nose, throat, urethra. Its natural movements be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate, and it should respond to natural stimuli. And by conditions contrary to those mentioned, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. So a doctor, like 3 B.C., writes to other physicians the common practice that, hey, this is what's normal in a baby. If not, disregard the baby. They're not worth rearing. And then Hilarion, who is um, 
this was written 1 BC. It's a letter to his wife. And he's writing, and you'll see this. It's like, he just look at what he says. He says, now that we are still even now in Alexandria, he's on a business trip, do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg you and beseech you to take care of the little child. And as soon as, I, I, as we receive wages, I will send them to you. Good luck to you. When you have a child... If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. It's like the uh, a laundry. It's like hey, it's like a, a to do list. Hey, babe, writing back. Hope you're having a great time. Uh, don't forget the you know to get the soap. Pick up the laundry. I'll be back when I can. I'll send you the money. If you have a boy, great. If it's a girl, throw it out. This is this is the this is the mindset. Okay, and why is that important? Because um, the practice that the Ephesians lived with was this dominant, oppressive, cultural worldview that said your value, your significance, your worth is based on your perfection, your strength, your intelligence, your body's um, standard of cultural standard and strength. And anything that didn't meet that standard was thrown out, which, by the way, is why Ephesus became um, a slave capital for slave trade because of this practice, because what they discovered, it was cheaper. What happened was parents would throw their children out in the wilderness, leaving them to be exposed to death because of any imperfection, any spot that was imperfect. They would leave them to die. And slave traders would come and pick up the children and raise them into slavery because it was easier and cheaper to raise a child into slavery than to buy an adult child. Uh, that was a, or sorry, an adult child. Um, we all know what those are, but that's not what I was trying to say. <laughs> You're like, I knew it. I was married to one. No, um, to, to buy an adult slave. So that is the mindset of the first century. People would take their unwanted child, leave them on the mountainside to die and be exposed. And as a result, you have this um, population of slavery come and be formed by um, slave trade. Culture said any blemish or defect or deformity was, the, was to be discarded. This is the mindset we read this text. This is the mindset we read this text. The first century listeners would have been hearing something different than what we hear. Now, I'm going to come down here um, and try to explain the significance. So when Paul writes this letter to a group of house churches, we're talking like maybe 15 in a house, right? So like this section right here, first four rows, like you guys are a house church, and then you guys are a house church. And we get these letters from Paul, and we read these letters, now, in our house church, we're connected to this house church, but we're going to start, we're going to read this letter. But in this house church, we have slaves, we have free, we have Gentiles who are seen as unclean, and we have Jews, we have male and female, and we have this oppressive, dominant culture that shaped us. Some of us used to worship Artemis, which we've talked about here. We worship this God who had to be worshiped with um, our sexuality, our finances. Some of us worshiped um, the Jewish God, Yahweh, but we became Christian. And we're all a part of this very diverse community. And we also have ideologies that are being wrecked by theology. Our, we were, we're having to learn to replace bad thinking with better thinking, with biblical truth. But we're committed to each other because Jesus is Lord. How are we doing? 
And so we get to, we get to Ephesians, and Paul writes this letter. I just want to read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're all hearing this for the first time. And he's like, he's calling us holy? We're saints? We're set, like, we're set apart holy? And then he goes on and he says this run-on sentence, which we're stopping halfway. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Ephesus, during the time that this letter was written, to be blessed, we know, requires all sorts of work. It requires, requires all sorts of sacrifice. To be blessed by Artemis requires you to go to the temple and offer more and more stuff to her to get that blessing. We have in first century writings, the Ephesian letters. And the Ephesian letters were scrolls and chants and these potions, these formulas for potions that Christians or non-Christians would have. Um, and they would, they would use these, they would buy these, and they would recite them over and over again because they never knew where they stood with the gods. So if you wanted a harvest, you would worship the God of harvest. If you wanted to have children, you'd worship the God of fertility, and you'd bring your sacrifice more and more. And pagan sacrifice requires more, and pagan worship requires more and more sacrifice to the point where some people would cut themselves to bleed for their gods. Because they didn't know where they stand. Their gods are the kind of gods that say you're, you're blessed based on your achievement and your body and that you are unblessed or you are cursed if you're imperfect. Their gods create an industry where they throw out children. And so they're hearing for the first time that they've been blessed by God, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you see it? Do you feel it? And then it goes on. And this is what always gets me. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul says, look, this culture you're swimming in, that, that word blame, we know what holy is. We've talked about it. That word blameless means to be perfect without imperfection, without blemish, that we are, we are in God chosen to be spotless, perfect, chosen by God the Father to be without imperfection. We are perfected in Christ. Can I get an amen? Is there anyone here that is hearing this for the first time? But then it goes on and it says, in love. He predestined or destined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So we read this story and we think, oh, you know what would happen in this little church context? You know what's going to happen? Is they're going to hear the word predestination and start debating free will? <laughs> which is what we love to do here, huh? We like to take an idea and make it a subject that has nothing to do with our relationship with God so that we can master theology rather than live theology. They weren't, they weren't debating predestination and free will. They would have wept with this idea 
that the God of all creation not only sets them apart and bless them, not only calls them holy and blameless, but out of his love chooses them. Like all the other gods, discard the children. They're, they're hearing the alternative narrative. Remember, the narratives that they grew up in in that culture was broadcasted like social media and Netflix through the arenas and the temples and the gymnasiums and theaters. We carry those things around in our pockets, but they were being formed by this worldview. And now there's this new idea, this idea that the God of creation is the God who walks up the mountainside, picks up the discarded baby and says, no, I choose you. All the other Greek gods made you work to live up for an unattainable ideal. Your worth came from what you looked like, how smart you were, your family, how much money you had, what you could possibly achieve. And as a result of this ideology, we discard anything that doesn't fit the perfection. The unwanted children are the byproduct of this. And our God confronts this narrative with a counter-narrative to culture and says, no, 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 it's not based on what you can do ever. And he says this phrase that Paul loves to use. He uses it in Romans. It's, he says, um, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. In the, in the, it's a legal phrase for son placing. It's a legal phrase for son placing. Um, this term created all this, this idea um, in a nutshell, is the gospel. And so let me explain what this phrase is because it's going to help you understand what Paul's trying to argue. Because remember, this whole series, Ephesians, is about becoming who you already are. Paul knows you live in a culture shaped by alternative narratives. And his whole book is about you as Christians, new Christians, to live in a way that is uh, grounded in the alternative narrative, the one that's built on truth. And so we spend three chapters, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, over and over again telling you who you already are because of Christ. And after three chapters of telling you what God has done in Christ for you and who you are, then in chapter 4, he'll pivot the whole book and say, now live in response, live out of who you already are. So many of us come into Christianity thinking we have to prove our worth. We have to change who we are. But what God does is he comes and he gives you identity and value and purpose. He, he says, hey, you're here and you're still struggling with addiction. He's like, that doesn't change your identity anymore. That doesn't define you. That past has been crucified with Christ or sexuality, or broken marriages, or whatever it is you want to put before God. He's like, no, I see my son. I see my daughter, and I choose that, that son and daughter. But he, Paul uses this phrase that's so profound. We just skip over, and we're like, oh, adopted in sonship. That's kind of, no, no, no. This is the gospel in a phrase. So if you had a child in the first century, uh, you had the legal right to disown them if they didn't perform to your standards as a family. And if you're a wealthy couple, you needed your children to behave. 
because you wanted to pass on your name, your estate, your wealth, your resources, your, your, um, your business to the next generation. Uh, in the first century, if you were a biological child, you could be disowned by your father and mother. You could kill your children and have legal support for that. But there was this term in the Roman culture called sun placing. And essentially it's this. If you didn't have biological children of your own, or if you disowned your biological children because they didn't meet the standards you had as a family, you could adopt most likely a male heir to take the place of that son. It was called son placing. And what you would do is you would, um, you would most likely take a servant or a slave from your household that you had relationship with to pass on the wealth, to pass on your name, to pass on to the next generation uh, uh, your, your resource and, and your commitment to all the things that you were. And so if you were adopted, if, if that legal process was, was happened, you could not be disowned legally by that family. So check this out. So this is what happens in the process of son placing. First of all, a father ha- uh, has to make known to the public, to the son, the would-be son, to the community and witnesses that the adoption is going to happen. The second thing, the debts of the former servant or slave must be canceled first. The third thing, the person that's becoming a son is now given a new name, a new family, a new status, a new identity, and a new father that was legally binding. And no one could take it away. And then the fourth thing would happen, uh, fourth thing that happened is he would be given new responsibilities and new privileges. So the father in the first century could disown biological sons, but adopted sons in Roman law couldn't be disowned once they go through that process. So when Paul says to the to the church, that he's chosen you, that he's in love, predestined you for adoption adoption to sonship in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, he's made known to the world that he chooses you as a child. He's canceled your debts. He's given you a new name. He's given you a new responsibility. You're now part of the family business, and no one can ever take that away again. That's the gospel, right? (laughs) See, we're just reading through these words. And and if we were sitting in a house church 2,000 years ago, swimming in that culture, we would be hearing it differently. It would draw us into something so much more significant than a debate about theology. Yes, there's a debate about predestination and free will. And I just need to say free will is clearly the, the biblical narrative. Like predestination, that idea is a Greek word for destined. Like this is where, this is God's intention, where it's going. It's never meant individually. It's always meant corporately. That God, yes, in Christ predestined us to be included in this epic story. And this story is that we are part of the family and nothing on earth or in heaven can take that away. How are we doing? Nothing can take that away. I just saw that the clock is not counting, so I don't know. Do I still have 40 minutes? Is that it? (laughs) In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay, what are some of the implications then? As we look at, as we as we recognize that this is an ancient text, two thousand years old, what are some of the implications for today? Well, the first thing I want to share today for you practically is this: your view of God shapes the way you see yourself in the world. 
Your view of God shapes the way you see yourself and the world. Paul spends so much time teaching you what God is like so that any other distorted view of God that you might have gets submitted to the proper view of God. I want you to think just for a moment. I know we're like restless and ready. What kind of view of God do you carry in your heart? Like, if I could be honest, I would say so much of my work as a pastor is helping people understand who Jesus really is. Helping them see that their view of Jesus and God is distorted. And because they have a distorted view of God and Jesus, that's an idol they worship. And what do I mean by idol? Well, when you come to God thinking that you have to do all of these things to get yourself right with him, that's not God. That's an inaccurate view of God. And what that does is it creates a work-based relationship with God that will never provide the truth and the freedom and the liberation, the love and the joy that God wants to give you. So we start by identifying the fact that we have a distorted view of God. We sing songs on Sunday that might mess with your theology. Like, I've never seen cancer disappear. We, some of us have seen cancer disappear. But also the Bible teaches that God desires healing. But yeah, Darren, but not, I pray for people and they still get sick. Yes, but we should still pray for the sick because eventually everyone will be healed. Maybe not in this lifetime, but in the age to come because there will be no more tears when heaven marries earth. Are you with me? Do you see this? Do you see what I'm talking about? Your view of God shapes the way you interact in the world. So if you carry this view that God is not interested in you, Or what most of us do is we project our earthly father onto the heavenly father and we continue to live life in in church with this perspective that God the father is like our earthly father. Anyone know what I'm talking about? So if he was uninterested or disapproving, we work in the Christian world to earn God's love and favor, to be noticed by God, to have his validation and affirmation, hoping that he might give us a gift on Christmas. But we don't know, so we just keep doing more and more stuff to earn his love. That's an idol. It happens all over the place. So our value and worth, Paul will say, begins with understanding who God really is. You hear what I said? Your value and worth comes first from an accurate view of God. It doesn't start with yourself. And this is what culture wants to do. Culture wants to say that whatever you feel or whatever you think about your truth, whatever your truth is, is what you should live out. No, that's a lie. That's Hellenism. It's a lie that culture feeds us that, well, this is my truth and I'm going to live my truth. Your truth is demonic. Your body is a temple. Well, it feels good. I'm made for these things. Yes, it is. But it's designed for this covenant relationship. This This is the environment where that gift and that sacred pleasure, that joyful expression that God has given us, and it's good, it's very good, is designed for marriage, where you can make mistakes under the covenant and you're not going anywhere where you hold each other up, where you hold someone up when one is down. 
And you live in this covenant friendship and marriage for the, for the entire life. And only in that environment may the power of sexuality and sex and pleasure that God gave us is designed to flourish. It's like electricity. Not having it is hard, right? It, not like electricity. We need electricity to operate our home, right? But, but it's a good thing. That's what I'm trying to say. Electricity is a good thing. I don't know where is it going. You're like, wait, wait, time out. I'm supposed to live off the grid. What about solar? I got Tesla battery. What are you saying, Darren? I believe you. Electricity is a good thing, but it's designed to be treated in a way that respects the design. I don't give my child a a metal knife and say, stick it in the slot. I teach him. (laughs) In fact, I cover it until he's of appropriate age that he can use electricity. I never, ever did that, by the way. I have pulled, right? We have tried to save our children from killing themselves into the electric. Um, I don't know where I was going, but it's like electricity. Google it. I don't know. Hey, Siri. Um, this, is, this, is, this is what the, the war we're confronted with, you know? So your view of God shapes your identity. It shapes the way you interact in the world. Um, I'll just add, I want to add this thought I was thinking about because I was thinking about praying for Ukraine. We were praying our pre-service prayer for Ukraine, and I was reading all these articles about the misinformation that Russia is just dumping into their, not only into Russia, but also into Ukraine. They, you know, and, um, and, and what, what's so fascinating is we live in misinformation, the misinformation age, right? So tr- we don't know what truth is. It's all been distorted, Right? And truth is what we feel, that we have to research it and figure it out. We have to do it like we, we just, there's so much bias out there. We, and it really is hard to practice discernment and wisdom. But anytime there's misinformation, there's war. Mis- misinformation creates war. Right? So when somebody intentionally chooses to give you distorted truth, like it's somewhat true. It's a war on truth. And because of the missing, like Russia's saying to their own citizens that they're being welcomed into Ukraine and they're being celebrated through, um, Ukraine is celebrating their arrival. Like this is some of the fake propaganda that Russia is dumping out. And we've known about this because in 2016, Russia was using Facebook to infiltrate the American um, voting system through Facebook memes. This is all in the Senate hearing, and this is all, like, there's all these facts and reports. Like, they were using memes and fake Facebook groups. They were owned by Russian troll farms back in Moscow, and they were putting on protests and counter-protests for, be it Black Lives Matter and the alt-right in Texas. This is all facts. So this is not, like, this is a historical truth that in 2016, Facebook groups groups owned by Russian troll farms had a protest for Black Lives Matter and another group that was run by the Russian uh, troll farm for the alt-right, and they did counter-protest. It was run by Russia. Misinformation creates war. It divides us. And so what we live in in this moment is misinformation. And, and we, we can create war with nations. Imagine what misinformation does to your soul. When the enemy continues to, to distort the truth in your life through cultural narratives, of course you're going to believe these things when you're watching and streaming all of the stuff on Netflix 
and HBO Max and Disney Plus and Peacock and, and Showtime. I mean, there's literally a million streaming options today. And we're, we're living in the gymnasium and theaters of Hellenism, which is point number two. Hellenism is alive and well. We have to challenge the cultural narratives we've adopted as Christians and, and put them against the truth of Scripture. Like the question is, do you have to prove your worth and value? Or have you received it from God? You're no, you no longer have to earn love from broken relationships. You no longer have to measure up or compete because of who you are in Christ. And as long as the enemy keeps throwing out misinformation and as long as you live with the distorted image of God, you will never know the power you have in the world. That he wants to set you free from these ideologies and views. He wants to set you free from addiction because you've believed this lie that you will always be this way. That is a lie. The Holy Spirit empowers transformation. It might not be easy and you might need to partner and do some work and disciplines to experience a transformed mind and life, but we need to recognize we're swimming in a culture that's lying to us. And so we read things like adopted and blessed and lavished chosen, blameless. That has to become the drumbeat of our life. And the question I have for you is, what are you, I don't know how to ask this. How are you choosing to remain faithful to the truth of God while you're swimming in a culture of lies? I would say it again, but I don't know. I don't know what I said. <laughs> Someone, yeah, anyone write that down fast enough? How do you so great? How do you remain faithful? I don't know. In the, swimming in the culture of lives. How do you remain faithful to who God's created you to be? How do you remain faithful in the truth of God while you swim in a culture of lies? At some point, the Christians in the first century stopped going to theater. In fact, first, second century, second or third century, I might get it wrong. In Athens, there was a, a bishop over Athens who we have his letters to the church in Athens. Writes to the church about an actor who was part of the theater and acting was part of pagan worship. Um, so it wasn't just like, oh, we're, we're doing this entertainment. It was part of the worship in, of idols. He... Uh, became a Christian, and he was asking the priest, does he remain acting, which provides his income, or does he have to leave it because, he can't, um, because he's now a Christian? And the bishop said he must leave it because it's an idol, and he's participating in an idol, idolatry, which is harsh. And then, then the bishop said the local church needs to support his salary until he figures out how to live working in another career. That's what the church did with idols. Not only do we give them up, but we no longer participate in the economy of idolatry. And if our brothers and sisters are part of an industry that produced that, or if there are things in our lives that even create economic sustainability for us, but it's part of an idolat idolatrous nation, we will, we will provide funding together to get them free. We will choose to, to not participate 
in what is clearly not from God. And it will have economic impact on our businesses because, but we want, so that we can remain faithful to God. But we're going to do it together. That's called remnant culture. That's called sacred, consecrated culture, where we take the words of Jesus so seriously that it changes our finances. It changes the cultural norms. The first century church in Ephesus stopped participating in cultural idolatry. They stopped using scrolls. They burned them publicly, and there was an economic riot, a riot in the city because of the economy. This is the legacy of our church. This is where we tie ourselves to. And lastly, I just want to say what I love about this theology is it's this theology in Ephesians that gets us thinking about practices like exposing of infants and slavery eventually. This theology will change the way Christians interact in the world. They are the first to create orphanages. They're the first to create education so that we can, children aren't working uh, in, in the industries. They actually get educated. Like the Christians, Christians are the people who created institutions that held governments accountable for the atrocities of of. Governments and nations that are godless, that don't see value in children or value in women or value in equality. It's Christianity. It's our great, yes, there's lots of mistakes. Yes, there's institutional failures. There's systemic failures in the church, but also there's so much good that pushed culture forward because of good theology. And we need that today. We need Christians to push culture towards the end. Because the story, I'll just finish with this, is a happy ending. Our story has a happy ending. And we draw from the happy ending in the present now. And we live towards that reality. So brothers and sisters, I pray that you'd be released from your false understanding of who God is and the idols that you carry around, the distorted views. I'd pray that you recognize where Hellenism is in your own life and relationship and that you would live free and courageously to stay faithful to Scripture. Would you stand? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.